welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Welcome to those who are online. Uh, if you will, uh, if you'll give me a moment here, uh, my mom called me this week and uh, and and mentioned that maybe I could dress up a little bit on uh, on a Sunday morning. So, mom, here I am. How am I doing? Any uh, any fashion tips? I will I will ignore, but um, but I I appreciate the feedback. So. We're, uh, we're, we're nearing the end of our, our study here through Genesis chapters uh, 1 to 4, which we've been discovering is really our origin story. It's sort of how we began and how we got to this place. And, and so far, what we've done is we've, we've looked at the God of the creation, the God of all this. And he's the, the most important character in the entire story. He's really, he's the main character. He's the star, and it's all about him. We just happen to be part of it. And we saw that, that this God was revealed to us in those first three chapters. We see God the Father, we see God the Holy Spirit in verse 2, and then we see God the Son uh, in Jesus Christ as let there be light. And so we've seen all three of them kind of revealed right at the beginning. And then, then after that, we saw the, the second and third characters of this story, which is man, male and female. And, and these, these characters are important, you and I, but we're not the main stars. We're, we're not, we're not the, the key component of the story. In many ways, we're kind of the romantic interest of the main star of God. But this morning, what I want to do is I want us to take a look at the fourth main character that shows up in this origin story. And, in, and almost like a movie, the, the, the story has begun with this, this incredible, this beautiful, ideal, perfect to the max setting where everything is wonderful everything is is good it's very good and then we have this wonderful dynamic and then all of a sudden the villain walks in, in onto the room the, the villain comes on stage and now we get to discover the one who's going to upset all this who's going to cause all kinds of trouble I kind of liken it to uh, to what the greatest Christmas movie of all time, Die Hard, when Hans Gruber walks into this into the movie, right? Good old Alan Rickman. Um, so in Genesis three one, now we're going to be introduced to the serpent that's in the garden, the one who's going to upset everything. And we're not going to look at the fall just yet. We're going to look at that next week, God willing. Uh, but this morning, what I want to do is I want us to take a look at who this serpent is to really understand him as who he is. Now, I, I hesitated at the beginning. I, I really didn't want to do this message because I don't want to speak on Satan. I don't want to spend that time on that. I'd rather be spending that time uh, talking about Jesus because sometimes I think what can happen is we can, we can drift in our talking about Satan almost into the area of worship where we talk about how evil it is, how powerful he is, how bad he is, almost in celebratory tones. And, and that's not what we want to do here. Um, you know, it's interesting singing Tremble this morning. I think it's a, it's a great reminder of who's the one we tremble at. And so I, I want to remind us of a verse in Isaiah chapter 8, beginning of verse 11. The prophet here writes, For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power, instructing me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that these people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. 
It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, he shall be your dread. He's the one that we will tremble at. Because no matter how powerful our enemies are, and you add them all up, they are but a, a piece of grass compared to God. They're, they're so small and they cannot even compare to him. And so we need to remember that, that we don't try to, to, to get worried about our enemy so much. And I, I'm, I'm kind of um, liking it to when Peter, when he's in the boat and, and Jesus calls him out of, the, out of the boat to walk in the water. And initially he was doing great. I mean, imagine that, to, to be walking on, this, on water in the midst of the storm and, and not sink. I mean, the ride, the thrill that that must have been until when? until he got his eyes off of Jesus and he looked around the storm and he began to sink. And I think, I think the same is true for all of us, is that we can get so caught up in, in the enemy and this world and the situation we're in and what's happening in Ukraine right now and everything that we can begin to sink as well. And so we need to come back to understanding who God is. So this morning, we're not going to give any praise and worship to Satan that only belongs to God but again, after initially rejecting the idea, I felt very strongly that God wanted us to spend some time, that God wanted us to look at and understand something about Satan and how it can help our, that understanding can help us. So here's our, under, our outline for this morning. First, we're going to see who Satan is and who he's not. And then we're going to understand why he rebelled against God and what, what that means for him now, what he's doing in this world today and what's going to become of him. And then finally, and I believe this is what makes it all worth it, what can we learn? What can we learn from Satan and his folly and his mistake and how can we apply that in our own lives as well? And so that's what we're going to try to do. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, Jesus. We thank you for the fact that you are God. You are the one that we, we tremble at. You are the one that we can worship and we can praise. We thank you that you are much greater than anything that this world or our enemy could ever throw at us. But this morning, as I follow your obedience, or obedient to your following, that you will reveal some things that we need to hear about our enemy so that we don't have this fear, we don't have this dread of him, but we can celebrate and praise all that you're doing to bring freedom. And Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, let me start by saying that Satan is a real being. And I say that because some have said, well, no, he's just an allegory. He's just a myth or he's just a character to sort of embody evil and all that's wrong in this world. But the reality is he actually existed. He exists to this day. He was there in the garden. He's actually he's at work in, uh, going on today doing all his, his business. And he's not Jesus' brother, as some uh, pop culture has tried to portray him as, where he's just a, a, the brother of Jesus. And often they portray him as a, a misunderstood character who's just, you know, doing his best and he made a couple mistakes and they, they just got pillared on over after that. And that's not the case. That's not it at all. And then just as a side note, I also don't believe that he showed up as a snake that it wasn't Eve talking to a, a talking snake, that rather it was the serpent that shows up. The scripture doesn't say a serpent, it was the serpent. And so the serpent, the title there, is descriptive in terms of his character and who he is. Much like we would say that Jesus is the Lamb of God, we don't actually mean he's an, he's an actual lamb. 
It's a, it's a title or a description of his heart. And so Satan shows up as the serpent, the serpent of old, it says in other parts of scripture. And that's why Eve wasn't freaked out by it. That's why Eve didn't think anything of it. In fact, I believe that, that Satan showed up in all of his glory and all of his beauty, which made the deception all the more dangerous for Eve because it was something that, that fit, that's something that looked good. So to get to know who Satan is, I, I think it's, let's start with his many names and his many titles. So the first one that we've been using so far is Satan, and that's, that's from the Hebrew word, Satan. I'm sure that's not how it's pronounced, but I'm struggling with English, guys, so I won't try anything else. But the word Satan literally means adversary or opponent. And that's why in, in the book of Job, we read about the adversary, Satan. Satan. In Greek, the word is diablos, which is translated as the devil. And again, it means uh, a false accuser or slanderer, which we see in Revelation 12, where it talks about he's the accuser or the slanderer of the brethren. He's accusing you and I. He's accusing you and I before our own, our own father, in fact. In Revelation 12, 9, it talks about the great dragon or the serpent of old. Jesus refers to him as the prince or the ruler of this world. Paul calls him the God, the small g God of this world. And the prince of the power of the air. This, Jesus described him as a liar, as a thief, as a murderer in John 8 and 10. And even the Pharisees called him Beelzebub, the princes or the rulers of the demons, of the devils. So there's lots of titles and lots of descriptions and to find out what his heart is like. But we have to understand, while, while Satan is God's rival, he's his opponent, he is most certainly not God's opposite. Because who is God's opposite? No one. There's no one like him, and there's no one on the opposite side of him. He is far from God's equal. And that's important to understand because too often what we do is we set this up as a, a titanic struggle of, of good versus evil, of God versus Satan. And we almost elevate Satan to being the equal of God on the other side, the, the yin to his yang, so to speak. And that's not the case, not at all. Now, Satan has power. Don't, don't get me wrong there. He, he's the one that's responsible for and caused the destruction in Job's life that we read about. That, that took away you know, his family and his, uh, his fields and his cattle and even impacted his own physical health. All of that was done at the hand of Satan. But what's interesting is you read through the story of Job and when Satan shows up in, in the court, when Satan shows up in the presence of God, God didn't freak out. God wasn't worried. In fact, God began to ask him, hey, what you been up to, Satan? He was relaxed because God knew the power he has compared to Satan. And so he's not everywhere like God either. He's not all powerful. He's not everywhere like God is. He's also not all knowing. Now, he's smart and he's cunning. And Genesis 3 says he's more cunning than any other creature. But again, he doesn't come close to the wisdom and the knowledge of God. But he didn't start this way. He didn't start as the adversary. That's not how God made him. He, he started in a very different way. God created him with the name Lucifer, we see in Isaiah 14, 12. The, word, the name Lucifer means bright morning star or bright light or bringer of light. And what we see here is this, this beautiful creation. In Genesis 3, 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So we see that he's cunning, he's smart, he's wise, more than any other creation, in fact. 
But notice, he's still a created being. He's not eternal like, like God is. He's a created being. But he was the most beautiful of all the angels. Listen to what God says about him in Ezekiel 28. Beginning of verse 12, he says, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, some have said that this passage isn't about Satan because it says it's addressed to the king of Tyre. But the reality is we're going to go on in this passage. We're going to discover that this is not about the king of Tyre. It's, it's a picture. Much like we would read Psalms in David, or uh, so, sorry, some of the Psalms that David wrote, and he's talking about his own experience. Really, it's a picture of Jesus. And so there's a deeper and more spiritual meaning to all this passage. And that's what we're seeing here. Because it goes on in verse 13. It says, you were in Eden. The garden of God. The king of Tyre wasn't in Eden. He's talking about Satan at this point. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, and the diamond. The beryl and the onyx and the jasper. The lapis lazuzzi. I don't know what that is, but that sounds good. The turquoise and the emerald and the gold. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Again, Satan is a created being, but he was created with beauty. He was created with this shiny glory. And he says, you were anointed cherub who covers. Now, the, the cherub is a, is a kind of angel that has a very unique role, a very special role. In the case of Satan here, this, as this cherub, it says, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire says, you are right with me. You are right beside me. You are blameless in your ways from the day you were created until righteousness was found in you. Unrighteousness was found in you. You see, he was not just any angel. He was the most beautiful angel, the most wise, and he had a special place as this cherub standing in the court of God next to God. An honor, a place of honor and distinction as, as fitting to who he is, to how he was created. But you see, the problem for, for Lucifer is it wasn't enough. He, he wanted more. And so let's keep reading in our passage in Ezekiel. In verse 16, he says, By the abundance of your trade, you were eternally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. So it's because of his pride, because of that sense of self, because of the beauty that he saw in himself, that, that it wasn't enough just to serve the Most High. Satan wanted to be the Most High. He wanted to be a God unto himself. And the prophet Isaiah, he captures it so well, the heart of Satan in this moment. In Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14, you're going to see there are five I wills of Satan. Five I wills of his heart. It says in verse 13, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in, this, in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You can see his heart. You can see his attitude. I want more. 
It's not enough to worship God. I want to be the one worshiped. I want the one to be the one that, that everyone turns to. And it's in this moment now where unrighteousness now is filling his heart. That violence, that, that evil now, that injustice and unrighteousness, that's what the word violence means. All of that begins now to fill his heart. And Lucifer now becomes Satan because he wanted to become the adversary of God. God didn't make him that way. God didn't create him for that role. Instead, he chose it. And he was successful, as we'll see next week. He was successful in his overthrow of man, of Adam and Eve. But he failed to overthrow the king because he doesn't have the power. And so as a punishment of his rebellion, God casts him out of heaven. And now he's, he's, he's destined to roam this earth, to roam this planet until his final judgment day. Unfortunately, though, Satan didn't go alone. There were, there were one third of the angels that followed him, it says in Revelation chapter 12. And those, those fallen angels became demons as we know of them today. And now all of them are left roaming this earth. Not passively, not sitting back waiting for judgment day. Instead, they're actively assembling. They're actively working, hoping that they will be able to win in the end. Continuing their attack on, on the king. And so right now, Satan's goal, I think, is essentially to block the glory of God. There's a great scene in the, in the movie Amadeus. It's an older movie, but Amadeus is about the, uh, the, the prodigy Wolfgang Amadeus, this, this incredible musician and, and piano player. And, and there is a, a, another character in the court who's actually more famous at that time, a man named Salieri. And Salieri was, uh, at the time, the most respected musician in the court, and everyone looked up to him. But he would work hard, painstakingly, to write every song, and, and write, and rewrite, and rewrite, and rewrite, and rewrite. And then one day, he, in the movie, he gets a, a hold of, of Amadeus's uh, notes, and he notices that there are no corrections. And he says it's like he, he wrote this as if he was dictating from God, this beautiful melody. And he was enraged with jealousy because Amadeus was a, a little snot-nosed kid who didn't deserve such gift and glory. And so in the movie, it, there's a scene there where Salieri, he's, he's complaining to God and he's angry at God that God would bless this little snot-nosed punk with such glory and not him. And he says, therefore, I will block him. I will oppose him so I could oppose you and make you suffer. And I think, I think that's probably maybe what motivates Satan is to see God make man, female and female, and the glory in which he made us. And Satan felt set aside. And, and he was angry at that. And he wanted that. And so he's decided the best way to make God suffer is to make you and I suffer. There's a lot of truth in that. You want to hurt me? Hurt the ones I love. Hurt my bride, hurt my kids. That's going to cut the deepest. And so I think that's what Satan's doing. He's blocking you and I, preventing us from expressing the glory of God in this world. And so in 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter describes Satan as a lion who's prowling around, looking for someone, looking for believers that he might devour. In Matthew 13, 19, it talks about how he's snatching away the word of God so that we don't know, we can't receive it, we can't trust in it. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that he's blinded the minds of those who don't believe so they don't see the gospel. Have you ever tried to explain the gospel to people and it's so clear and it's so obvious and they don't see it? It's because their minds have been blinded by the enemy. And in 2 Timothy 2.26, he's even deceiving the world that the world might do his will. And you see, he doesn't show up in in a red suit with a pitchfork and a tail and horns. No, he, he shows up as an angel of light. He shows up with beauty, and it, he seems to make sense because of his cunning and his wisdom. Everything he says appears to be reasonable and good to some. And he does this, I think, primarily because he confuses us from Jesus. I think if I could pick one verse that summarizes what Satan is doing, it's 2 Corinthians 11.3. Paul there, he he writes, he says to these believers, he says, I'm afraid, I'm worried, I'm concerned about you, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, by his cunning wisdom, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity to Jesus, to Christ. Now, now most translations have added the, the phrase devotion to Christ, but that's not in the original text. That's been added. I think it's simpler than that. It's just he's confused us. He's distracted us from the simplicity that is Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. See, what he's doing is he's he's selling to us a very complicated gospel. A gospel that is based on what you do or maybe on what you don't do. Or maybe it's, it's based on something you need to accomplish or you need to add to your life and, and you need to work for it. And you need to try harder Or maybe there's just something that you need to make happen in order for everything to be okay. And the problem with this is that we're distracted from the simplicity of all that Jesus has done and all that he is currently to us. And so we start to elevate things that are important, but not the most important. The most important being Jesus. And I think about my own life and in the times that I struggle, whether it be fear or anxiety or shame or temptation. And it's because like I'm like Peter, I'm looking around the circumstances. I'm looking at everything going on around me and I don't know how I can keep it and I begin to sink. And like Peter in that moment, all I need to do is, is look at Jesus. Look at my Savior and remember all that he has already accomplished all that he's already done and all that he is offering to you and I today, the simplicity of Jesus. So I think that's his primary goal. Distract, confuse, twist, deceive, so we don't see the beauty of God. We don't see the trustworthiness of God. We don't see his love for us and his care and his provision. And like he did in, in, to, in the garden with Eve, He makes us question his motives. Is he really safe? Is he really trustworthy? And we're not sure. So what's to be our response to Satan then? Well, should we just run and hide? No. James 4, 7, James writes, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I think there are three parts here. Number one, there's a a submit to God. That's the first part there. Let's turn your eyes back to him. To tremble in front of him. Not because you're terrified of God, but you're in awe of his power. You're in awe of his love and his beauty and all that he's offering to us. So we submit to God. We turn to him. 
And then we resist the devil. We don't give in to what he's selling us. We don't give in to the lies and deception. And notice, and he will flee. He will run scared away because you got Jesus right there with you. Now, we did a message uh, many months ago when we were going through Ephesians chapter 6 and the, and the armor of God and knowing your enemy. We talked a lot more detail about dealing with Satan and the demonic. And we're not going to go into it right now. But if you want, you can find that message on our YouTube channel or on our website. Just search for Know Thy Enemy and you'll be able to find it. But in a brief summary, really what we have to remember is that God has granted to us all power and authority. He's given it all. And, and as John writes in 1 John 4, 4, that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Because he's already overcome him. He's already overcome the world. And so we don't need to be afraid of Satan. We can know he has power and know that he's cunning. But we don't need to be afraid. Instead, we hold fast in the name and the authority of Jesus Christ. But I think it's important to ask the question, why does God even allow all this? Why does God even allow Satan to cause trouble? And, and I think about the, the story in Luke chapter 22. Right when, uh, whereas Peter, he's, he's confessing his allegiance to God and, and how, or to Jesus and how he would never betray Jesus. And then, and then Jesus, he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, I want you to know Satan's asked permission to sift you like wheat. So to understand that picture, what he means by that is what in, in the time of Israel, in the biblical times, when they would take the grain, they got to separate the, the actual uh, grain from the chaff and so forth. And so what you would do is you would take a giant sieve and you would throw up the grain and, and the wind would carry the chaff away and then the grain would come back down. And you would just do this over and over and over again. So imagine if you're this, this grain of wheat, you're just bouncing up and down. Can anyone relate to life that way? All right, I want off this ride sort of idea. When he says that's essentially what, what Satan wants to do. He wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to put you through the, the worst of it. At this point, I'm just imagining Peter saying to Jesus, looking at him, going, so what did he say when you said no? <laughs> that's not what Jesus said. And maybe the most underwhelming words of Jesus he ever spoke. He says to Peter, Satan's asked permission to sift you like wheat, but I'm praying for you. <laughs> Let's be honest now. Even Jesus' prayers are not very comforting in that moment, are they? In that moment, you're thinking, come on, Lord, you can do better than that. Right? Like, what's this hedge of protection? I mean, I'm sure there's some other flowery words, send angels. Like, come on. Like, you've got to be better than this, Jesus. But he says exactly what he's praying for, that he says, after you fail, notice he, he's not wondering if he will fail or not. He's not even praying that he won't fail. He says, after you fail, that you will be able to strengthen the faith of your brothers. You see, I think that's so beautiful. Because I, I, we, we know the story of Peter, how he denies Jesus, and that's in all the Gospels. And it's, everyone in the early church would have known the story of Peter and his failure. And then the redemption of God to Peter. Now I want you to imagine now you're in that, that early church, and Adam has blown it. It's hard to imagine, I know. But Adam has blown it, and he's blown it in a big way. And he's thinking, who can I go to? 
Who can I go to and share my struggle? Who can I speak to on this that I know will, will offer me love and grace and response because I'm so ashamed. I'm so beat up over my, my failure, my sin. And you know who the safest person in the church is at that moment? It's Peter. Because he can go to Peter and Peter's not going to say, what a bad Christian you are. Peter says, I know. I know what it's like to fail Jesus. But I also know his grace and his love and his forgiveness. And so Peter becomes the safest person in the early church. Someone that they can go to. You see, Satan, he had a goal. He meant, he meant that to destroy Peter. That Peter would never recover from that shame and that guilt, and then that he would be taken off the board, so to speak. That he would, he would leave the game and the ministry and he'd be no value anymore. But what he didn't know is that God had another plan. A plan that would make Peter truly, truly dangerous. Truly powerful. And now a, a real threat to the kingdom of darkness. And you see, what we see here is that, that Satan has to ask permission. We see that in the story of Job. We saw that in the story of Peter here. And God will sometimes give him permission. But only because God knows how he'll be able to flip it and use it against Satan. And so that's the good news for you and I. Now, we're going to keep this part short, but I do want to talk a little bit about the future of Satan. What's going to happen? What's, what's going to await him? Because as we see, as we saw, Satan has not given up his fight. He's still wanting to sit on the throne of God. He wants, still wants to declare himself God. He still wants to be God. And so right now, he is working against God, trying to create an army of followers. And he will play a key role in the end times. Now, he's, he's not the Antichrist. That's not who he is. But he is, he is behind the spirit of the Antichrist, as 1 John 4, 3 says, is already in the world and is already working and is yet still to come. And so I think he's been in the world ever since the garden, the spirit of the Antichrist. And he's been working through various people at various times, and he's very much at work right now. And, and we see this in all sorts of thing, different things. We see it in any religion that rejects or denounces that Jesus is God. We even see it in the current religion of our society, which is science. It's interesting to me that people, they declare, I believe in science, is almost like it's a, uh, it's a theological stance, that I believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. They've equated it to that kind of a, of a level where it's, it's part of their theology now. And this, this, I believe in science, is often portrayed as a way to why I don't have to believe in God. That I believe in science rather than believing in God. But Paul has a lot to say about the connection between Satan and the Antichrist, also known as the man of lawlessness. And so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, he says, Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? He's talking about the end, the end, end of time that is to come. And he says, you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This is the Antichrist. He's already at work. And that's some 2,000 years ago. Only he who now restrains him will do so until he's taken out of the way. So what we see here is that the Antichrist is at work and he's not been yet revealed because there's something constraining him. And when that, that thing that's constraining him is removed, then suddenly now the world will see it for who he is. 
Now, interesting, Paul's writing to the church of Thessalonians. You know what it is. I mean, we talked about it. And the rest of us are like, uh, I missed that part of the movie. <laughs> Anyone want to fill me in? And we don't know for sure. I mean, there's speculation that it's God, it's the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's the church because God is in the church. Maybe it's some angels. We don't know exactly what it is, but we may speculate as to what it is, but we don't know for certain. And it says, when that's removed, then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. And it says, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one who is coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And so what's going to happen is Satan is going to empower the Antichrist as well as the false prophet. And they're going to do incredible miracles and signs and wonders. Things that, that science can't even predict or explain. And the world is going to look at that and say, oh, we have a savior. And I've, I've seen over and over again, our world is crying out for a savior. It's crying out for someone to come along and just make life easy. Make it simpler. Because life is hard. And we're overwhelmed by it. And so when this man comes and he does this incredible signs and wonders, the world is going to be in awe and they're going to turn over their power and their authority to this man. And he will declare himself as God. But the good news is Satan and the Antichrist, along with the false prophet, all of them will be defeated in the battle of Armageddon where Jesus Christ himself will win. Jesus Christ himself will overcome them all. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And if you want to be encouraged when you're, when you're looking at this world, I, I, I suggest you read Revelation 19, verses 11 to 19. Read about that battle, how Jesus comes in all of his glory. No more does he come in his little humble attire as a son of a carpenter. He comes riding a horse and he's got the army behind him and he's, he's in his royal robes and he's got a sword and he's got fire in his, in his eyes. He is a dread to the kingdom of darkness. That's our God. That's our older brother. That's the one who's on your side. That's the one we tremble at and we worship and we glory. And what's interesting in Revelation 20 and verses 1 to 3 and what happens now is an unnamed angel secures Satan and throws him into a prison cell. Isn't that good news? It's an unnamed angel. It's just you, over there. Take him. Okay. Right? It's not like he sends the, the Navy SEALs of the angel force to subdue him in some way. It's just an unnamed angel. And then eventually him and all the other angels will be tossed into the lake of fire, which was prepared for them as a result of the rebellion in Revelation 20, verse 10. So all that is happening. All that is going on. And that's what's going to come. But what does that mean for you and I? What can we learn from, from Satan? And I think that's what I really want to emphasize this morning. Because you see, the story of mankind is one of redemption. It's a, it's a redemption of what Jesus has done through Jesus Christ, available to anyone who would believe, anyone who would receive it. Well, the story of Satan, unfortunately, is, an un, is the ultimate tragedy. 
There is no redemption for Satan and his angels. And so we can learn from that, starting with what, what caused Satan's fall. What, what led to his rebellion, and it's, it was his pride. Remember in Ezekiel 28, verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I think of it this way, that essentially Satan forgot that he was a created being. And therefore, he played no part in his beauty or in his wisdom that belonged to him. It was a gift from God. He didn't earn it. He didn't achieve it. It was given to him. But he thought he was better off for it. He thought that he somehow played a part in all of that. And so his pride led to his, his fall. Which is why in James 4, 6, talking about God, he says, God gives us a greater grace. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That word opposed means that he will stand in opposition to, he will get in the way of those who are proud. But please understand, the reason he does that is so that we will humble ourselves. Because his heart is he wants to offer you and I grace. Romans 12.3 says it this way, that, that through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. He says, you and I, we can't take credit for who we are. It's God made us this way. Now, please understand, I think as Christians, what we've done is we've gone way too far with this. Instead of finding that balance, we're prone to extremes. And if humanity is good at anything, it is extremes. We struggle to find that, that balance point. And so what happens now is we think that in order to, to honor this verse, in order to not think humbly of ourselves, we've got to think of ourselves as horrible. Just a, a dirty worm. I'm a sinner saved by grace. There's nothing, nothing good. I'm just this horrible, wretched, miserable person, no good. And that's not what he's saying. Because that's not who you are. Scripture never refers to you and I as sinners saved by grace. It says you were a sinner in Romans 5.8, which implies what? Not anymore. You can come up to the front line. <laughs> anymore. Romans 5.19 says that God made you righteous. He constituted you as righteous. Isn't that good to our Dave? That you are righteous. He's given you a new heart and it says in Ezekiel, the heart that is pure and clean. There's nothing wicked about your heart anymore. You had a wicked heart, but that heart was replaced. You have a new heart with new desires. In fact, that new heart, that new spirit in Ephesians 4.24 says was made in the likeness of God in holiness and in truth and in righteousness. That's how good you are. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says you're holy. You're God's beloved. I thought about a verse for that and God just says the whole Bible. The whole Bible speaks to the fact that we are his beloved. And then in Hebrews 10, 14, he says he's made you perfect. And immediately our mind goes to, well, I don't, I don't do everything perfect, though. And I say, I knew that already. 
You didn't have to tell me that. I, I assumed that you're making mistakes. But that doesn't change the fact that you're perfect. That you're perfect because God made you perfect. And we forget that when we get distracted from the simplicity that is Jesus. And we fall down this, this trail, this path that the enemy leads us down. And we make mistakes. And we sin and we blow it and we hurt ourselves and those around us. And God says, but you're still perfect. Because your perfection is based on what I did on the cross, not what you have done. And that will never change. Because who can undo what God has done? No, instead, I think what he wants us to do, he wants us to enjoy that what he's given to us. So in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 19, it says, Furthermore, as every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. And so what God's done is he's, he's wanting you and I to enjoy and celebrate all that he's given to us. So Robin can enjoy his good looks. They don't believe it, Robin. I don't know. That was a... Uh... <laughs> he's shrinking. All right, I'll pick on someone else. Greg can enjoy his... Wi- someone else. <laughs> Mr. John can enjoy his wisdom. Right? You can enjoy your creativity. You can enjoy your athleticism. You can enjoy the things that God's given to you. You can look in the mirror and actually be happy with yourself. Because that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to embrace and love ourselves. In fact, it's a command. Did you know that? That you're to love God, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. God doesn't want you to hate yourself. He wants you to love yourself. And we can do that because of what God's given to us, because what God has blessed us with. We just need to remember why. We need to remember why we're righteous, why we're good, why we're holy, why we have all this. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. Not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He's saying that I don't deserve this title. I don't deserve this role. I didn't earn it. I didn't achieve it. I didn't go to school for it. I didn't graduate with degrees in it. I was gifted it by my father. But by the grace of God, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I am an apostle because God did it. And so he's got the right view of himself. He's not seeing himself as a worm. He's not seeing himself as no good, filled with shame and guilt. He knows that he is okay. He knows he's loved because of what God has done. And I think that's what we need to remember. That's what Satan forgot. Satan forgot that he was created that way. And if we can remember that, that we've been created righteous and holy, some, some argue, well, that's, that's awfully proud to say you're a saint. And I argue the opposite. It is the most humbling thing you can do to acknowledge that you're a righteous, holy child of God that's a saint. The reason I say that's the most humble thing in the world to do is because you had nothing to do with it. To say that you somehow can do something to become a saint, to become more holy, to become more righteous, that is filled with pride. Because that's to declare that you can add something to the finished work of of Jesus Christ. So the most humbling thing we can do is to acknowledge, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve any of God's love. I've sinned, I've blown it, I've made so many mistakes. 
but God. But God has, has blessed me and he's bestowed upon me so much. And so we can celebrate this. We can celebrate your, your identity in Jesus, but we can celebrate your creative ability. We can celebrate your beautiful voice, your physical beauty, the power of your mind to think logically and understand complex systems, your strength of character and resilience, your physical strength, your ability to work hard, your ability to even create wealth. All of it came from God. And we can celebrate and we can enjoy it and we can thank him for it. But let us learn the lesson from Israel. In Deuteronomy 8, 16 to 18, in the wilderness, he fed you with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and he might test you to do, for you in, to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and strength of my hand made this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gave you the power to make wealth. So enjoy and celebrate it all, but don't fall into the trap of Satan. Looking in the mirror and thinking it's all about you. Look in the mirror and enjoy and celebrate what God has created. And the beauty of that now is we get to enjoy it and bless others with it. As it says in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, we read this verse last week, but it's so good I wanted to read it again. It says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. See, what God's done is he's done something special with you. He's made you into someone incredible, and you can enjoy it, but now you get to bless others with it. Isn't that incredible? We get to bless others. We get to love others. And we get to offer them the greatest gift in the world. And that's Christ in you. May that be our calling card as a church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we learn the lesson of, of Satan. May, may we learn the lesson of who we are because of what you have done leaving no room for our pride, leaving no room for the idea that I can do it on my own, that there's something I have to offer you on my own, that there's something I can accomplish on my own. Instead, Father, I pray that we would, we would honor you by offering ourselves to you, by submitting ourselves to you, by humbling ourselves to you so we may receive grace. And for those that are listening to this message, Jesus, that have not done that ever in their life, may they do that right now. Very simply, just turn to you and say, here I am, Jesus. And for those of us who've been walking with you for a long time, I pray, Lord, that we have that exact same attitude. That in these moments of fear and trepidation, these moments that overwhelm us, that we wouldn't look at ourselves as if anything is going to come from ourselves, that it's our own power, because that's not where adequacy is coming from. It's coming from you, who has made us adequate. It's coming from you, who has offered us this life. And in trusting you, Lord Jesus, may your name be glorified. May the world see you and run to you as a result. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. 
Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.